millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. (laughs) Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and Mop Master dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite the history community to nail their protests to the cathedral door, metaphorically speaking at least the podcast where we take common misconception and contrive reasons to behead it. I am your regular host, Paul Babel, and I am here with my ever-loyal co-host and defender of the rage, Kyle Glover. Hello. We're going to get that translation to Latin and put it on a coin. Right then. Okay. Dr. Francis Young, if you are listening, please translate that into Latin for us. Well, this week, dear ragers, we are diving back to Tudor times at the start of what our guest today describes as one of the most massive myths in religious history. Today, we are joined by writer, speaker, public history consultant and historian of religious conflict and nationhood, Charlotte Gautier. Charlotte, welcome to History Rage. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Excellent. Feeling angry? I'm starting to get a little myth. Okay, well, we will be lighting that blue touch paper and fleeing out of the room. Uh, if your uh, if your messages via Twitter were anything to go by, this is going to be quite the epic. But you came to us quite a long time ago now, after we did our call out for guests and had the resultant tidal wave of guests that joined the rage train from there. I really ought to do that again. But could you give our crowd at this particular public execution... A brief history of you and what led you into that field and how you got to the pinnacle of your career that is being here. Fair. So when I first started doing my PhD, I thought, I'm definitely not going to do English history. And I'm definitely, definitely not going to do the the Tudors. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, how did that work out for me? Right. Um, But I'm Yeah, quite. Uh, I'm, so I'm currently finishing up. It's almost done. 
um, a PhD at Royal Holloway University of London on diplomatic history. So 15th and 16th century diplomatic history, and specifically the uses that English monarchs made of crusading language in their diplomacy. And this has involved uh, going down the sort of rabbit hole of Henry VIII and Wolsey trying to put together several crusades, one in the 1520s, well, early in the 1520s, one later in the 1520s, um, of a, a universal peace preparatory to what they said um, was an anti-Ottoman crusade. This, of course, has involved reading all of uh, Henry's sort of, you know, pro-papal and pro-papal supremacy material. I mean, it's fascinating, um, but it's definitely yeah. given the opinion. Yes, excellent. Well, this is your very public forum here. Um, it's a lot more public than it used to be as well. So uh, hello to everybody who's recently joined the tra- Rage Train, because we're not, what, time of recording? 15,000 downloads a month? Oh, yeah. oh God, I never thought we'd get there. Okay, so let's let, let's kick this rage off then. Charlotte, would you please tell that crowd that has gathered for the execution of a wife what you wish people would just stop believing? I wish they would stop believing, first, that Henry VIII started the Church of England. He didn't start the Church of England. He didn't start the Church of England because he wanted to get his rocks off of Anne Boleyn. And he definitely didn't start the Church of England because he was a Protestant or a Protestant sympathizer. He just did not start it. And there we have it. Yes. Ever since our day at the Clink Museum, where it referred to the Protestant King Henry VIII, I have been itching to get this going. So I am delighted to help you out. Oh, right. Yes, yes. We we should have got you on earlier. Series one. That would, you know, eight people would have heard it, but there it is. So before we actually get into Henry, I'd like to think, being somewhat of a Protestant or what my wife refers to as a diet Christian, because I married a Catholic, there is more to being a Protestant than just not answering to the Pope. So what makes a Protestant at the time And how do we define Church of England within that? How long do you have, basically? About an hour. Yes. Well, the the, the nutshell version, not wanting to take up the entire hour. Um, You have to differentiate between what we would call Protestant. Now, I love your wife's phrase, diet diet Christian. I'm I'm going to use that. Even though I am myself a communicant member of the Church of England, so I have, you know, nothing, nothing to say here myself. But um, so you have to differentiate between what we would now sort of call a, a Protestant and the project. This wasn't really a project um, of, of what the reformers thought that they were doing in the 16th century. Um, even people who we would call obvious Protestants now, like Martin Luther, for example, mm-hmm. he didn't think that he was starting a church when he nailed his 95 uh, theses to the the cathedral door. That was not his purpose. What he wanted, essentially, was to strip away some of what he and what other sort of Protestant, uh, in air quotes, thinkers um, believed were abuses that had taken the medieval or late medieval uh, Catholic church away from the, you know, the, the teachings of the early church. So their great call was ad fontes, so to the sources, 
So they wanted to make the Catholic Church that was, you know, currently extant in Europe look more and more like the Christianity that they found in reading the Church Fathers, you know, St. Paul, St. Augustine, those people. Those um, kind the, of important to Christianity people. Th- those, those kind of important to Christianity people. Um, now, I think most of them, and certainly the, the later Anglican divines, you know, until the sort of 17th century or so, would have counted, for example, Thomas Aquinas among those uh, church fathers. The problem for them came in the sort of later sort of 15th, 16th century incarnations mm. of Thomism and of sort of doctrinal change, which actually didn't even look anything like Thomas Aquinas, much less, you know, like anything that, I don't know, Origen or something like that would have said in the third century. Okay. So so when, what are the key differences then between what Luther is wanting to bring about and what's actually going on? Sure. Uh, so the, the one that everyone will point at um, immediately is indulgences. You know, we, we hate the sale of indulgences. Okay, so let's let's talk about indulgences. Now, the there's a sort of doctrine, and this is the doctrine that Henry VIII uh, ends up writing um, one of his polemics against, which is this sort of doctrine that one is is saved not by works but by the sort of pure grace of God. So there's there's nothing that you can do um, that will sort of make God give you uh, entry into heaven. And this is, you know, obviously you you can't sort of, you know, build a church and then have that building of a church guarantee that you'll get into heaven. Well, you also can't sort of spend money and have that sort of guarantee you getting time off purgatory. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But the, you know, the, the polemic that, say, Martin Luther is engaged in is really a sort of polemic, as most polemics are, against a straw man because that wasn't actually the doctrine of indulgences. The idea of an indulgence was that it would be the fact that you're giving money to the church is the the fruit of a grace that you have already received. Oh. It's not your sort of Pelagian heresy where you're trying to buy your way into heaven. It goes back to what St. Paul said in I forget the letter theologians can write into the show um, and and remind me, but the idea that you know the the works that you do are an outworking um, of the spirit or an outworking of grace. So essentially, all of these things that that Martin, well, not all of them, but many of the things that the reformers are talking about are abuses that were abuses because they were not following the actual doctrine um, Mm. that the Catholic Church held at that time and still holds. Okay, so if we're we're getting on to, if we're getting on to Henry, we'll come to Henry and the actual Church of England, but, you know, your rage, part of that rage at least, is Henry isn't a Protestant. For the benefit of people out there that, you know, don't think in the way that I do, why not? So, I would break this into uh, a couple of different things. So, I mean, he is 
if you're looking at his sort of sacramental theology, so what you actually believe happens in the Mass or the Holy Communion or the, the whatever you want to call it, Henry is a Protestant, so-called, in very large air quotes, whole ton of salt, etc. He is a Protestant, air quotes, in that he does not believe that transubstantiation occurs. Now, people then, as well as people now, mistake what we mean by transubstantiation as opposed to, for example, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Because this is not theology rage, it's <laughs> history rage, I won't go too deep into it. But Good. basically, <laughs> but basically the, the question is between sort of what happens and how it actually happens. So Henry VIII, um, like the sort of higher church people in the Church of England, like me, for example, um, believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So, you know, the bread and wine are actually, you know, really contain um, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Henry yeah. VIII believed that. What he didn't believe is Thomas Aquinas's account of how this actually took place, which he based on his reading of Aristotle, which you must believe if you're a Roman Catholic, um, and which you explicitly do not believe um, if you are in the Church of England. It's right there in the 39 articles. So Henry is a Protestant to the extent that he doesn't believe in very sort of specific doctrines, hmm. but he is not a Protestant or what we would you know, he's not a Protestant in the way that most people understand that because he does not intend to start up a brand new church yeah. um, when he issues the, the act in restraint of appeals. You know, yes, he would like to sort of to remove some abuses or to go back to certain doctrines, but that is that is a lot different than saying, you know, we're going to completely sort of start from the ground up, yeah. as it were. Yeah. I mean, I'm right in thinking that once he's, you know, like, once he's done the act and, you know, he's climbed off Anne Boleyn and told the Pope where to go, you know, it, but he then does things like he still observes all the saints' feast days, he still, he still takes mass in the same way that Catholics would still take mass, all of that kind of religion and dare I say idolatry that's within that, if that's the right word, is is still in there. It, it, yeah, you I, would not spot a difference between his style of worship before and after. Yeah, there would be very, very few differences. So, for example, you know, there's still sort of um, six candles on the altar, for example. Now he does, um, in fact, he does reissue. Um, a saint's calendar, a feast days. Obviously, people like Thomas a Beckett are mm. removed from it, but it still has most of the sort of early church uh, saints, the sort of the, the big ones that people were worshipping, and some of the English saints, for example, like St. Alban. Um, mm -hmm. So this this idea that, well, you know, we're going to be sort of Protestant, and therefore we do not ask for the intercession of saints. Henry was not Protestant at all in that way. Okay, thank you. Right, intro, let's get into some details then. So, 
the big question, if Henry VIII didn't start, found, whatever you want to term it, the Church of England, who did? Okay, so there are a bunch of different candidates. And which horse you back is and has been since that time a sort of sectarian issue. So the sort of prime candidate of the uh, the high church party would be St. Augustine of Canterbury in 597. So the 6th century, uh, Pope Gregory sends Augustine uh, of Canterbury off to um, evangelize the, the court in Kent. Uh, King Ethelbert, uh, lovely name, has married yeah. a, uh, who was a pagan, quote unquote, uh, sorry, uh, Francis, if you're listening, <laughs> I, I apologize. Um, so, Ethelbert, who, who did not, who was not a Christian believer, married Bertha, who was, um, and as a sort of consequence of, of Bertha's marriage contract with Ethelbert, um, a bishop came along with her, and then they sent away to the Pope uh, for missionaries to uh, evangelize the court in Kent. So the idea of the, by the way, tangent, and this also, so I'm, I'm getting more and more animated, so this <laughs> is also something that pisses me off. <laughs> sorry, sorry, kids. Is some of my colleagues, and indeed uh, some sort of people who enjoy history normally, try to make a difference between the church in England which is supposed to be this historical continuity thing, and the Church of England, which is what happens after Henry VIII. I'm sorry, it's nonsense. It's just, it's not a thing. What's normally talked about in the sources is Ecclesia Anglicana. So uh, Latin, obviously, it doesn't have articles. The articles are mm -hmm. included in the word, so you can translate that however you like. But the later medieval sources, once they start talking in English... Or once they start writing in English, they say Church of England, not Church in England. So once you get actual articles, it's 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 always yes. of. Sorry. Okay. So the idea of Augustine five ninety seven. This is a sort of you know continuity uh, church, and it's the idea of the Church of England being simply the local instantiation of the universal Catholic small c church. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other candidates, and maybe we can get on to some of these because some of these are great. So my personal choice, just because I'm a contrarian, um, would be parliament in the 14th century. Um, we can talk about all kinds of uh, legal fun in a moment if you want mm -hmm. The another sort of historical uh, thing has been the Lollards. Um, Ooh, we like a Lollard. Yes. Um, I have a colleague, and I tend to sort of back him up on this, who said the Lollards were not a thing. Like, there was no movement called Lollardy. But this sort of idea of, you know, wanting to reform the, the English church, not believing in transubstantiation um, because the the heresy, quote-unquote, um, that they were accused of was specifically not believing in transubstantiation, although many of them still did believe in the real presence. Again, you have to separate the two. Yeah. So that's, that's a possibility. 
Um, then you have a sort of bunch of academics at Cambridge, most notably sort of Erasmus, for example, who had been teaching at Cambridge for a few years by the time that um, Henry VIII sort of, you know, does his dirty business. Then the more obvious candidates are Edward VI. But of course, he he was a kid when he came yep. to the throne. So it's more so the courtiers around Edward VI, whom they called the new Josiah. Mm. Um, but the other candidate, besides Augustine of Canterbury, who I think has a very good claim, the other candidate who has an excellent um, claim and that the sort of low church partisans would probably all say her is, of course, Elizabeth I, Elizabethan settlements, you know, the prayer books, you know, 1559 sort of things kind of coalesce in her reign. So I think you can choose between Augustine of Canterbury and Elizabeth I if you really want a, a strong candidate. The, the others are sort of, you know, fun to speculate on. Okay, so... Just coming to Elizabeth I then, you know, so the case, if you're going to make the case for Elizabeth I, then you've got to then also be making the case that you are, that Henry VIII didn't. Yeah. So what did Elizabeth I do that Henry VIII didn't? Okay. So there's a few things. So first, she... I hate the idea of of a via media. Let's also sort of that that is another rage for another time. Is it there was no such thing as the the Anglican via media? Maybe I'm going to have to start theology. <laughs> I can think I, I think it's got legs. This doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> can can I rip off your idea and start theology rage? That might Certainly. actually have to be ten percent commission for all your Patreon subscribers. Okay, <laughs> call it an indulgence. <laughs> Absolutely not a problem. Okay, so. Elizabeth I, now, she tried, um, and I think that she did very well, and, and history sort of borne this out, I would say, at carving out, not necessarily a middle way, because that sounds sort of, you know, very mushy, and yeah, just do whatever you want, but at laying out, look, here is the minimum um, of what you need to at least profess to, publicly in order to be a sort of you know uh, a public member of the the church of england so this is done in a few ways obviously you have the 1559 prayer book i think and there is a continual debate on this and there will always be a continual debate on this i think as to whether it was more quote-unquote protestant um, than Elizabeth herself actually wanted. She mm -hmm. had to deal and did deal very well, I think, with quite a bit of uh, factionalism um, between uh, her her own magnates, the sort of you know Roman Catholic continuity uh, folks, which is why there are all these still very beautiful medieval churches in Norfolk. Thanks, guys, and the the more sort of you know Protestants are uh, reforming type elements you can blame the uh the cambridge divines uh again if you really want to but of course she herself now it was very you know interesting if you look at what we know about elizabeth's own chapel is that you know there are vestments there are six candles on the altar she is you know she 
does and in fact sort of has a, a kind of screen erected around her at her coronation because she wants to receive in both kinds both the bread and the wine which was definitely not a roman catholic thing mm-hmm. the laws at elizabeth's coronation were still the same that had been made by her sister mary the first and obviously she can't have her first act as queen to be seen to literally be breaking the law but yet she wasn't willing to receive in only one kind so she has a little screen erected around her so elizabeth herself was uh, a bit of a a mixed bag in her own worship of, you know, these Catholic small C um, elements and these more sort of Protestant, mm-hmm. also sort of small P elements as well. And that's what the, the Church of England sort of ends up looking like um, under her reign and what essentially, you know, for better or for worse, for richer, for poor, etc., it has been since then. So Elizabeth makes fundamental changes to the way that worship is conducted whereas to be flippant about it henry the eighth just tells the pope to go get stretched yeah essentially now of course you know you you do have to sort of think okay and now henry the eighth does make obviously some fundamental changes in that he shuts down all the monasteries Mm -hmm. for example slight problem um, which had been, of course, the the engine room of the the Church uh, of England ever since they were founded, um, and he does get in quite a lot of trouble um, with with the people, you know, about this, you know, the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536, for example, when it looks very briefly like Henry VIII actually will be overthrown, it gets really, you know, quite hairy there. So obviously, people on the ground are seeing that changes are happening. Some of their favorite saints, like Thomas Becket, for example, have been expunged from the calendar. And Henry VIII orders all of the, the missiles to be destroyed that have the, you know, the, the mass for Thomas Becket's day mm-hmm. um, in them. So he is making changes, but I think that they are much less sort of, you know, onerous changes for example than we would have seen under edward the sixth you know if if he had in fact lived then we would have had a very very protestant you know we would have ended up sort of looking like the scandinavian lutherans or something like that if edward the sixth had actually lived so just to return to something i flippantly joked about at the start of the episode um didn't henry write a book in defence of the Pope's supremacy, and got gifted a lovely title in return. What what happened? Yes. And what happened after that? Okay, so the defence of the seven sacraments. Yes, so defence of the seven sacraments. Now again, so if you you read the the thirty nine articles, which gets um, which are basically the statement of the Church of England's uh, belief, which get issued under uh, Elizabeth. First, obviously, it says two dominical sacraments, so the ones that Jesus instituted, that being baptism and Eucharist, and five other things which are, you know, not actual, I mean, they're sort of called sacraments. Okay, but Henry VIII in 1521 is defending all seven of them. Can you tell me what the other five are then? I'm not a religious man. 
or That's a spiritual right. man. You know, my place in the afterlife is probably assured on the basis of my day job. But yeah, if you've got baptism and Eucharist, what are the rest? Okay, so you have baptism, the Eucharist. Oh, you're quizzing me. Do I know my catechism? Okay, so if you're going to start theology, Rage, you better get this basic right. <laughs> That's true. Okay, so the other five are confirmation, reconciliation, so confession, essentially, anointing of the sick, marriage, and holy orders. So Henry right VIII is is defending um, all of these in 1521 um, against a polemical work of Luther's uh, that he had uh, put out. So Henry VIII writes this book. Now, does he have help or does he not? That, again, is a sort of matter for debate. Um, some people say, oh, Thomas More obviously helped him because, you know, Henry VIII, he, he was no theologian and obviously, you know, he, he didn't have the mental capacity. I mean, I don't think that's quite true. Whether he did or did not ha- have help from uh, Sir Thomas More, whatever. But anyway, he writes this. The Pope uh, is absolutely delighted uh, with him. So this is uh, Leo X, who gives him the title sort of uh, Fide Defense, or so Defender of the Faith. Henry starts blazoning this title all over everything so the (laughs) moment he gets this title it obviously it means a huge amount to him so from the time that he gets it every diplomatic letter that he ever writes or has written for him includes defender of the faith in his titles this was you know a deep became a deep part of who he actually was (laughs) it became such a deep part of who he was that when Pope Clement VII removed it um, after, uh, obviously, the statute and restraint of appeals, Henry VIII has the English Parliament revote him the title, which is why it's still on all the coins now and why Charles III uh, is, yes, the defender of the faith. Okay, so this becomes, as I say, a very deep thing for him that he is seen as not only a Christian monarch but the Christian monarch now the other other Christian monarchs so France for example had been gifted or had taken upon themselves similar titles so France is the most Catholic king of France can I just say the most Catholic king of France was allied with the Ottoman Empire um, at this time and giving war materials to the Ottomans to actually invade Christian territories. So, I mean, I'm just saying (laughs) that Henry seemed to take it slightly more seriously um, than the, the other European monarchs. Although, how did that work out for him? I mean, you can just sort of, you can feel... I mean, if you read any of the the diplomatic dispatches, you can feel Henry's own rage growing as, for example, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, as his forces invadedly sack Rome, imprison the Pope, literally imprison the Pope. And Henry's like, 
and this guy is more Catholic <laughs> than me? Let me know. Yeah. Now, that, that is kind of harsh treatment, isn't it? When you put it, I mean, when you put it that way. it's a problem. Yeah. Yes. I mean, which is also, I mean, that, and we'll, I suppose, come on to that um, in a while, is also why Henry was not actually able to obtain his annulment from Pope Clement is because he was literally being held prisoner by his wife's nephew. Yeah. I mean, it's a problem. Yeah, it, it is a major headache for the chap, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If the break with Rome in 1533 doesn't come about because Henry wants to start a church so that he can get a divorce and that he can, or an annulment, and he can shack up with Anne Boleyn, two questions. Why and when? Okay. So let's sort of go back to, to things that happened um, uh, after 1521. So maybe we'll go back to the, the beginning of the reign of Pope Clement VII, absolute useless, just useless. So November 1523, Pope Clement VII uh, gets um, made Pope. Now, Clement had been a sort of um, elder statesman. He had been the... Um, essentially the, the, the head of foreign diplomacy uh, for his predecessor as Pope. And the idea is, well, you know, there have been these wars going on in Europe between France and the Holy Roman Empire for possession of various different territories in Italy since essentially the, the 1480s. These have been going on, you know, on and off. Mm -hmm. Clement comes in and the idea is, you know, there is going to be a universal peace in Christendom uh, preparatory to sort of fighting back against the Ottoman Empire, which has been steamrolling uh, through the Balkans since 
you know, basically the 1460s. Clement is completely unable to do any of this. Now, there actually had been a quote-unquote universal peace that had been negotiated, but by Henry VIII and Cardinal Wolsey in 1518 to 20. Wolsey does this because he wants to be made Pope, essentially. And he thinks, look, if I can pull off this diplomatic coup that nobody um, else has been able to do, then obviously I will get made Pope. He doesn't get made Pope at that conclave uh, in 1523. It doesn't happen uh, for Wolsey. Clement gets in, tries to deliver this thing that Wolsey said, well, I've already delivered me. And essentially everything kind of goes tits up, goes completely pear-shaped for Clement. So by 1527, um, he is holed up in Rome as the forces of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, descend on him. Clement is uh, allied with France and uh, Naples and Milan and all of these sort of Italian city-states who they can't sort of really get it together. Then the most awful thing happens, which is that the Ottoman Empire invades Hungary. Not only does it invade it, it, it smashes it to bits. Essentially, the entire Hungarian army is annihilated. The mm -hmm. king is killed, and Charles V, so the emperor's brother, becomes one of two claimants to the Hungarian throne. Now, it had been known that this invasion was coming for literally a year. Hungarian king is writing to everyone, Pope Clement is writing to everyone, saying, Look, we need universal peace now. We need to stop the war now. We need to help Hungary now before, you know, this small but very important country um, gets invaded by its neighbor. We need to send them war materials, etc. Um, how times do change. Clement can't organize this. And so Henry VIII and Cardinal Wolsey, again, try to take over organizing the universal peace try to take over, and they do in fact take over, um, organizing the war effort, sending out war materials and money out to Hungary. So there's a growing sense, sort of 1526, 27, certainly into 28, there's a growing sense in England, look, this Pope is useless. He's not very good at poping. You know, he has, he's now imprisoned you know, what good is he, essentially? So that is one element that sort of goes mm -hmm. into, into Henry's kind of thinking, why do we need this guy? A second element. So if you start reading um, the, the diplomatic dispatches, they're, they're very fascinating. People, you know, will have to, you know, keep a lookout for my monograph uh, for when it actually sort of <laughs> does uh, eventually come out. So, Henry and Wolsey are writing back and forth to each other and to other people. Um, they have diplomats, English diplomats stationed all over Europe. They're writing about two things. So first is the defense of Hungary. And the second is Henry's sort of growing sense that he needs to put Catherine of Aragon, his wife, um, away because he needs to have a heir he needs to essentially avoid civil war. Now, we, looking back 
through history, I think in a way we can't really empathize with Henry's situation because we've seen essentially three of the very best English monarchs have been women, Elizabeth I and Elizabeth II. So, I mean, of course, uh, a, a woman can rule. What's the problem? But the only precedent that Henry VIII had to look at was Queen Matilda. Mm. I mean, and that period is called the anarchy for a for, reason. Yeah, for, for a very good, very reason. good yeah. reason. So, you know, spare a thought. Now, Henry VIII, um, he was actually a psychopath. Actually a psychopath, he had no compunction about murdering anyone that that got in his way. Truly evil man. Evil man. But even an evil man I can essentially have a point, you know, sometimes. Mm-hmm. So he starts writing to Wolsey, uh, look, you know, this is for, for the, the good of the state, compared to Catherine, you know, since I was essentially what, 16 <laughs> 15. years old. Yeah. 50, yeah. So, you know, she was my older brother's wife. Because don't forget, kids, um, Henry VIII was not the oldest child of Henry VII. He had an older brother called Arthur who was married to Catherine first. And, you know, so for the good of the states, this this needs sorting. But also, given how sort of useless the, the, the popes have proved, you know, given essentially the fact there's a sort of, he never says this explicitly, does Henry, but there's always a sort of undercurrent of how is it that God is allowing the Pope to be imprisoned by the Holy Roman Emperor. There's something that's obviously sort of rotten at the heart of the church if God is like allowing this judgment mm. to be happening. So these two factors are sort of going into his thinking. As to why 1533, I mean it wasn't it wasn't inevitable, obviously, that it would happen in 1533. I think what you have to realize about Henry VIII's personality he was one of these people, and we all know somebody like this, who has never been told no. He wants what he wants, when he wants it, and he is willing yeah. to do anything to get it done in the time frame that he wants. So he tells Wolsey, look, obtain this annulment for me. Wolsey starts sort of grinding the machinery of the Vatican into gear. And the arguments that Wolsey is putting forth are essentially sort of technicalities that won't challenge papal supremacy. At the same time, Henry sends his own secret private ambassadors to the Pope saying, never mind Wolsey, Wolsey can do his little process over here. If that works, great. Um, If not, like you... Also try to negotiate this. He's disintermediating his own cardinal, his own chancellor, his own right-hand man in an attempt mm-hmm. to get this annulment done as soon as he possibly can. So part of this is 
you know, he wants to, he wants what he wants when he wants it. And part of it is sort of think of, of it from the point of view of this is going to sound very strange, given that I have also just called him an evil mass murdering psychopath. He also was fundamentally a religious, even I would say probably a superstitious man of a particular type. And I think that he probably had actually convinced himself. He was very good at convincing himself of things. Yeah. I think that by this point, he had actually convinced himself that he also was undergoing a judgment from God because he had contracted this marriage, which incidentally, he didn't want. The England needed an alliance with Spain, which is why he took Catherine just after he came to the throne, because England needed the alliance. England had needed the alliance for the last 20 years, which is why they've been sort of dicking around trying to get Catherine married first to Arthur and then to Henry. So this sort of idea that, well, you know, he had gotten this this dispensation and, but what if that's not right? You know, and then Woolsey is saying, but, and we're going to get you a, an annulment on the same kind of technicality. That must have been very uncomfortable for him, just sort of, you know, pastorally from a sort of, you know, point of view of his actual belief as well. This is not excusing him um, mm. at all, but just trying to say, you know, there are sort of, it's not just a kind of historical quote unquote factors. Henry VIII, like every other historical person that we study, we so often forget that these are people and they have thoughts and they have feelings and they have psychology and they can be wrong. You know, they're not just yeah. sort of, you know, um, perfect spheres. Um in a vacuum. And so we tend to sort of discount the, the psychology. And I think, you know, essentially by sort of 1530 or so, something had kind of broken in his head. Now, that being said, in addition to the, you know, the, the annulment proceedings, he does continue to maintain resident ambassadors at, at Rome into the early 1530s. They're mostly talking about a crusade for the for the relief of Hungary. But I think this gives some fairly solid evidence that Henry is, you know, not a Protestant, not trying to to start a church. He is actually working with the Pope as a sort of, you know, geopolitical actor. Mm. Um, and when essentially Wolsey fails, Wolsey, you know, dies essentially before he can be executed. Henry's personal um, embassy fails. It is very obvious, it becomes very obvious that Charles V is not going to allow Henry VIII to have an annulment from his aunt. And because Charles controls the Pope, Henry essentially exhausted everything that he could before saying, okay, um, we're going to restrict the ability of people to um, appeal to Rome. Now, one thing, and we can get on to this in a second. Yeah. This is a continuation of a series of laws that were started to be passed in the early 14th century. 
So this is not a brand new thing um, either. Henry's just building on existing legislation. And I think that so often gets lost too in all of this. Oh, you wanted to start a church. So when the break with Roe occurs, how big of a deal is it, if that's not too glib of a question? What was the immediate aftermath? Um, a bit of a damp squib, mm. um, to be honest. Okay, so what changes sort of uh, immediately um, on the ground in English parish churches? The answer is not much, uh, frankly. Now, the dissolution of the monasteries accelerates slightly, but the dissolution had already been occurring for some time. I mean, Cardinal Wolsey dissolved several, you know, what what he called sort of, you know, uh, unviable monasteries in order to to get money to sort of fund all kinds of um, Oxford colleges, less them. So that accelerates slightly. I find it actually sort of ironic and amusing that what Henry uses the bulk of the money from the dissolution of the monasteries for sea defenses because he Mm -hmm. is worried that the Pope and the other European monarchs are going to launch a crusade against him. So he spaffs the money up a wall on sea defenses. Um, Now, so the, the legislation that actually sort of gets passed, statute and restraint of appeals, what that does is essentially say, yeah, look, you, you can't go to the papal consistory uh, for anything. So all of these sort of things, you know, all of these letters, these missives that used to wing their way to Rome for people saying things like, I was caught in a storm at sea and uh, in extremity. Um, I made a vow that I would go on pilgrimage if God delivered me from this storm at sea. Um, but I actually don't want to go on pilgrimage. So I'm going to write to the Pope and get the Pope to dispense me from my vow. That was the sort of thing that normal people would write off to Rome to to sort of get done for them. And uh, Act and Restraint of okay. Appeals says basically, you can't do that anymore. Hmm. So that now becomes dispensing from vows and things like that becomes the, the property um, of your local bishops rather than the Bishop of Rome. So if you, uh, if, you didn't want to go on pilgrimage, you know, 1533, it's sort of one day you're riding to Rome and the next day, I don't know, maybe you're riding to your, your diocesan. So that's probably, weirdly enough, um, the first thing that, that might have changed for people. But as I say, you know, this was just building on legislation that had been passed um, as early as 1307. So there's these things that people have heard the word primunire. And they have heard the word promunary because it's like, oh, Wolsey, uh, Wolsey gets charged with it. Wolsey's going to get sort of you know, executed for it. What, what does that actually mean? Okay, so the two statutes, the first of these, um, of many of these, passed in 1307, statute of provisors. And this is the, the idea that the, the Pope cannot make cannot put any bishop or any priest or any abbot or any whatever into office where the king owns the advowsons, owns the right to actually put in that bishop or put in that abbot or put in that, you know, priest or whatever. That had happened as early as 1307. The same thing with 
the statutes of primunire, the first of the statutes of primunire essentially say, look, you can't go to Rome over the heads of the English courts for anything over which the English courts have jurisdiction. So it can't be if you don't like a judgment that you've gotten in a common law court in England, you can't write to the Pope to suddenly get that overturned. So in a way, the statute in restraint of appeals just sort of goes one step further and yeah. says you can't go to the Pope at all. Yeah. So it's you can argue it, and I think you could make a sort of good argument that in a way, usually it's a sort of continuity thing with existing English law. I don't know. Fight me if you don't like it. <laughs> that was a challenge, ladies and gentlemen, uh, listeners. You can take that up on Theology Rage. There we go. Okay, so just to wrap things up then, we've we've covered a lot of the detail of breaking with Rome, styles of worship, everything. So with all that, how does the idea of Henry VIII starting the Church of England just so that he could get a divorce get any kind of traction? How does it become popular now? Okay, so like so many things, like so many terrible um things it kind of starts off and is perpetuated by a sort of sectarian thing the sort of idea if you want to to undermine the legitimacy um of the church of england the best thing to say is i mean obviously you know this guy just started it to get his rocks off so you know obviously you sort of you know have no leg to stand on it's not a real mm. church etc etc <laughs> So that's sort of, that's the sectarian portion of it. Now, a lot of sort of fuel is is added to the fire, weirdly enough, by people who think that Henry VIII actually didn't go far enough, that in fact, he wasn't sort of Protestant enough. Yeah. So, so the idea is that he sees, you know, starts this church so he can get his rocks off, and he obviously, you know, he wasn't a Protestant because, you know, he sort of, he didn't have this reforming zeal and he didn't, you know, he smashed some of the images or had them smashed, but not all of the images. So am I right thinking there that we actually have this idea that Henry VIII starts a church and becomes a Protestant because he wasn't a Protestant? Yeah, I think that's yeah. a pretty fair summary to, to be quite honest with you, yeah. Excellent. And this is carries on, you know, how how does this then develop over time? I mean, there's a whole sort of episode um to, to be done on sort of you know, during the, the English Civil War, people's sort of weaponization of the, the origin story um of the Church of England. That's a whole other sort of rage. Um it's continued obviously to, to be um popularized in the popular media and a friend just showed me the, the other day it blew my mind it's actually been popularized by the church so the in yeah yeah quite so so in the 1980s the the episcopal church um in the u.s it's, it's the u.s equivalent of the the church of england actually ran an ad saying you know in a church that was started by a guy that you know had six wives and just wanted to get his rocks that they didn't actually use that phrase mm. but in a church that was you know started by a guy who who wanted to get a divorce you know forgiveness um is available here and it's like wow 
And it's like, that's beautiful in a way because, you know, Christian forgiveness, absolutely wonderful. Could we not perpetuate the sort of bullshit line? In the process, yeah. Yeah, it's like forgiveness, amazing. Can we sort of talk about that in and literally any other way? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Thank you very much for that, because that's, I mean, aside from the fact that I love, I love a good range of socking it to the Tudors and socking it to Tudor history in general. We don't do enough slagging off Tudors, um, but that that has actually opened up that whole level to, to a level of a level of complexity that I'd even never considered. So so thank you for for giving me a lot of theological and philosophical points to consider. You know when it, when I look at the most hated of kings, I was I was very glad to do it. Yes, uh, sort of next season you'll have to to have me on. The thing that I really want to rage about is this sort of idea that that England was a sort of you know it was an isolationist sort of thing. You know, an island off the coast of Europe and nobody cared for it and it didn't care for anybody. Oh well, I I, think, I hate that idea. I think we'll be having you back. Uh, we'll be having you back for that. Yeah, Great we'll fun. definitely discuss. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I, I do hope you've enjoyed that. If you would like to know more about Charlotte's work, then uh, you can follow her on Twitter uh, at Farai Unverse. Indeed. And we will put a uh, link to that uh, in the show notes. And uh, she has written several articles for The Critic as well, and we will be putting those in the show notes as well. But Charlotte, thank you very much for getting that off your chest. And when you come back to History Range, You'll be Dr. Gautier. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it myself. Feel better? Very much so. (laughs) Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I am at Kyle G History. And you can engage further with us on our new website at historyrage.com. But if you're loving this, why not join the Angry Mob on Patreon? Because your £5 per month will get you early episodes ad-free, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to our future guests, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. But until next week, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.